Democrat New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has extended voting rights to 35,000 convicted felons, or as he calls them, the Democrat base. We will analyze why Democrats rely on felons, foreigners, and children to help them win elections. Then, the latest in Donald Trump ushering in an era of peace for the entire world, and a word on Barbara Bush, something that everybody is missing. Finally, the mailbag. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. Hey everybody, so I'm still on the road. I'm in Philadelphia. I've just finished a delicious cheesesteak and I never want to leave this place. You know, it's very good for a a Gavone to be here. And uh, so anyway, I'm speaking tonight at Trump University, the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business. You know, we we call it Trump University for short. People have been uh, pulling down my flyers during, uh, you know, during uh, campus walks and things like that. They've been finding the flyers littered all over the campus. So we definitely don't want uh, the word to get out that this event called Reasons to Vote for Trump is going to be happening tonight at 7 p.m. in John Huntsman Hall at the University of Pennsylvania. That That's really going to upset the students there at Trump University. So don't, I just don't spread the word. Don't let anybody know that it will be at seven o'clock tonight in Huntsman Hall at Trump University, also known as the University of Pennsylvania. That should be a lot of fun. So before we get started, there's a lot to talk about today. A lot. The the Democrats are, uh, they're moving beyond satire at this point. They're actually becoming parodies of themselves, just springing the jails free so that they can get more voters. Before we talk about that, we have to talk about Skillshare. Because look, I don't want you to be some like dirty, rotten derelict, you know, the kind that they're trying to go out and get. What you need to do is better yourself. Only by bettering yourself will you uh, be able to make a better life and you don't need to rely on somebody else to do it for you. One of the greatest uh, things that I've come into contact with by doing this show is Skillshare. So I love using Skillshare. It is really, really good. Uh, it's an online learning platform with, I think, 18,000 classes in all sorts of useful things. So they have a design, business, technology, all of that. I have to look to read those because I don't take any of the useful ones. I, I do ones like time management. That one's pretty good. Hard to find the time, you know, but then when you do it, hopefully you can learn all the other things. Uh, but look, it's 2018. So you're going to need You can't just go work at the plant for 60 years and then cash in your pension. That's not how the economy works anymore. You need to uh, be able to build up a little side hustle, build up your own professional skills. And then also, if you find yourself with some free time, you've, you've listened to every single episode of the podcast, you've seen all of the breakouts, you've sent it to your friends, you should... Uh, just do something to uh, culturate yourself, to to make yourself a more cultured person. If you ever find that you're bored, go to Skillshare immediately. Only boring people get bored. You should never be bored. You need to be cultivating interests and cultivating skills. It'll really pay off down the line. So uh, they're they're really good. I, I can't recommend them highly enough. Also, they're like practically free for my listeners. So you can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for Michael Knowles show viewers and listeners. You will get two months of Skillshare for ninety nine cents. Listen, I look. You probably got your tax return, probably got that little refund. Maybe it was like $1.99. Take half of it. Take 99 cents and go use this. It's practically free. You're foolish if you're not checking it out. This is a great opportunity. In the old days, you know, back in in the Stone Age, you had to go places to learn skills and go buy books and take classes. Now you can do it all from the comfort of your own couch. Do it. 
it will uh, it'll it'll just really uh, make I think your your free time better and also might actually make you employable. Wouldn't that be crazy? Okay, do that right now. Skillshare.com/slash/Michael M-I-C-H-A-E-L. Skillshare.com/slash/Michael M-I-C-H-A-E-L. Don't spell it like they spell it at the coffee shops. Skillshare.com/slash/Michael. Okay, let's get into this thing. You know, I think Cuomo is just uh, trolling me practically. He's, uh, uh, I was going through New York State. I was in New York for like six hours. And he decides, hey, I'm going to spring all the jails so we can get some more Democrat voters. Absolutely outrageous. And, and it really did get me thinking, this is what the Democrats rely on. They rely on felons and foreigners and children. I spent at least 10 minutes this morning trying to make that alliteration work like uh, felons and foreigners and fetuses or something like that. But we all know the Democrat Party's relationship to fetuses. That is not exactly in the base. So it couldn't work. But they are relying on all those three. We'll talk a little bit about uh, how they're doing that. The, The main thing we're seeing here is just a total subversion of the law. The law in New York is if you're out on parole, right, you've been convicted of a felony and you're on parole, you don't get to vote. That's how it works. Your actions have consequences, and if you're going to commit felonies, then you you lose some privileges of citizenship. But Andy Cuomo doesn't like that. Now, he's not going to go in and change the law. That would be too democratic. That would be too too much law and order. That would be uh, too civilized. Instead, what he's going to do, this is what he said. He goes, quote, it is unconscionable to deny voting rights to New Yorkers who have paid their debt and reentered society. Uh, why? Why is that? First of all, they haven't repaid their debt. They're out on parole. Parole is when you get out a little early, you get out temporarily, you, do, you actually have not paid your debt to society. So even on the premise, he's wrong. But why is that unconscionable? Why is that, if, if someone commits a felony, do we really want that person crafting policy for our country? Maybe in some cases, but plenty of people get perfectly reformed and they come out and they're upstanding citizens again. Uh, a lot of people don't. Do we, why is that unconscionable that, would, that we would deny them the right to vote? Uh, really what this is all about is just lining up new Democrat voters. And I think Andy Cuomo knows this. This has been a trend going on for a while in the Democrat Party and when they have governorships ac- across the country. The way that Andy Cuomo is going to do this is by pardoning them. So he's going to take 35,000 people right now who are felons on parole, and he's just going to pardon them of their crimes so that then they ha- you know that that makes them into eligible voters you hear uh, everyone raising cane because donald trump uh, pardoned scooter libby a guy who was guilty practically of nothing and everyone's freaking out about that cuz he's pardoned like one guy andy cuomo says not only am i going to pardon 35,000 right now i'm going to keep pardoning them the more they come up for parole i'm just going to keep pardoning and pardoning and pardoning and pardoning and then they're going to keep voting for me in the united states There are 6.1 million people who were not able to vote in 2016 because of a felony conviction. So either they're on parole, they're, you know, they're inmates, they're whatever. They couldn't vote in the election. How do you think those guys are going to vote? Are they going to, you know, it, it, they're going to vote for their, for their fellow crook. (laughs) They're going to vote for their fellow criminal, Hillary Clinton. They're going to break for Democrats. There's no question about that. Uh, Right now, one in 40 Americans, 2.5% of the voting age population, according to the uh, sentencing project, cannot vote. Now, mind you, 50% of the country that's voting age doesn't vote anyway. They just don't want to vote. But uh, the left is taking issue with this, that 2.5% of eligible voters can't vote. 
or would-be eligible voters, voting age Americans can't vote. Why is, who cares? Why is that a big deal? They say this is awful. The United States has one of the biggest uh, prison populations in the whole world. It's the highest incarceration rates in the world. 670 inmates in the United States per 100,000 Americans. That's so much higher than all of the other developed nations, you know, that we protect and that all look up to us because we have a way better country than they do. It's five times the average of all of those. The next closest is Israel with 250 inmates per 100,000. You know, the next closest is that other really, really good country that is a beacon of hope and order and civilization in a terrible region of the world. You know, like, man, why wouldn't we, why would we want to be like that? Why can't we be more like Italy, you know? Why, why don't, because... Italy is, runs rampant with crime. The mafia controls like half of that country. No, man, you know, it's just too many people. And they point out the number of Americans incarcerated in prisons has increased over the last 25 years. Now, look, I'm not that old. I've, I haven't been roaming around this earth for too long. Uh, but I've noticed something over the last 25 years that's confirmed by social science statistics. Uh, We've increased the prison population over the last 25 years, and crime has steadily decreased. Hmm. I wonder if there's, could you, do you think there's possibly a correlation between those things? The New York Times, famously, Fox Butterfield, uh, he ran a headline, something to the effect of, uh, prisons, uh, crime continues to drop despite prisons filling. Hmm. I, you're saying despite, maybe there's a correlation here between those two things. So who cares if we have the highest incarceration rate in the world? It, this isn't like the Soviet Union here. This isn't like we're uh, imprisoning political uh, dissenters or something. That only happened when Barack Obama didn't like Dinesh D'Souza because Dinesh D'Souza made a movie about him. So then he threw him in jail for some ridiculous trumped up charge. But usually in the United States, and certainly when good Republicans are in office, that doesn't happen. We don't just have a lot of political dissent, uh, prisoners or anything like that. We have criminals in prison. That is a good thing. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world. Good. Let's keep getting it a little bit higher, baby, because there's still crime going on on those streets. Uh, up it a little bit more. Maybe we'll have some safer streets. Uh, but of course, this is a strategy that they want to pursue. In Virginia, we saw this in 2017, the Democrat governor, Terry McAuliffe, he uh, started using executive orders to restore felons voting rights in 2016. And at the time, we all knew what he was doing. If he thought that the felons were going to break for Republicans, he would never do it. But Terry McAuliffe restored the voting rights of 168,000 felons and 42,000 of them had registered to vote very quickly before that race in 2017. Now, that it wasn't close enough, that race, for that to really have made a difference. You have to add in all of the other people who shouldn't be voting you know, to, get to, when you get, to get to those numbers. But still, that's a lot of people. An extra 42,000 votes for a tight election can really be a determining factor. The Democrats know this, and they're not going to get fooled again. Right now, in Maine and the People's Republic of Vermont, current inmates are allowed to vote actual, like people in prison, I don't know if they get a furlough or something to go down to the polls and wreak some havoc, both on our democracy and on the people around there, and then they get to go back in. But they choose to have uh, actual prisoners voting. More on this in one second, but first, we got to talk about a little honey. You've heard me talk about honey before. I, I don't even need to look at the ad. Honey is one of the greatest products ever invented. I have been using honey so much. I think I've been using honey significantly longer than the Daily Wire has existed. It is this amazing browser extension. You add it to your browser and it saves you money. 
And you, now you think, what's the catch? There's no catch. There isn't any catch. You just go. So I don't know if you know this in the Stone Age, what you used to do when you'd go shopping online is you'd Google like, you know, promo code at Amazon or whatever, promo code at whatever store you're at. And then they'd give you a huge list and then you'd manually insert them and they would never work. They, you know, you'd be like, oh, no. And then it would screw up your cart and then you'd have to like go back and refill your cart. It was just this mess, right? Now you have this browser extension and you just you just go shopping and then it saves you money and it runs all the codes and it does everything for you and it just saves you money. It is so good. Millions of people are using Honey to save money while shopping online. It is free. It takes two clicks to get this thing into your browser. Saves you tons of money. Really, really good. It automatically searches the two million sellers on Amazon to find you the lowest price. I buy a lot of things on Amazon because, you know, I don't write books, but I do read books. So I'm on Amazon all the time and it just finds you the, the best prices. It, you know, it, it'll, there's the honey drop list. So it'll notify you if the price drops. If you don't want to do it now, maybe it'll let you know. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. I couldn't tell you the last purchase I made with honey. I, I probably, like, it, would, it would be much easier to say the last purchase I made without honey, which was years ago. I use this thing every time I go shopping do it now. Like you install it right now. This is, it's very easy. It'll save you a lot of money. There's no reason not to do it. It's free. It takes two clicks to install and you will always get the lowest price on Amazon. Add Honey to your browser for free right now. Joinhoney.com slash Covfefe. C-O-V-F-E-F-E. Get a little more Covfefe in your wallet, you know. Joinhoney.com slash Covfefe. C-O-V-F-E-F-E. Okay, back to criminals. So uh, right now there are 12 states where uh, even a a person who is a felon, committed a felony, completed his prison sentence, we're not talking about being out on parole, actually paid his debt to society, even then they still can't vote. And listen to these states. Let me know if they sound like anything to you. Alabama, Arizona, Delaware, Florida, Iowa, Kentucky, Mississippi, Nebraska, Nevada, Tennessee, Virginia, and Wyoming. The thing they have in common is they're like really nice states they're good states, you know, that keep their affairs in order and they're just like good and orderly and civilized. They're not California, which is just absolutely bankrupt or New York being flooded, a sanctuary city subverting federal law, uh, giving illegal aliens rights to vote, things like that. It, it isn't that at all. Uh, and it's it, because they keep, they keep a hard line here. We'll get back to why this is the case. The, the left calls this racist. They say it's racist. If you don't let either people who completed their sentences, criminals that completed their sentences vote, or people on parole vote, or even people in prison vote. If you don't let those, all those criminals vote, that's racist. You say, what are you talking? Why is that racist? They say, because it, that means you're not going to let black people vote. Say, did you hear what you just said? You just said, you're the one, you just said black people and criminals are synonymous. That's what, I didn't say that. I don't think that. I don't think that's true. You said that. But they do that. Oh, they, they say, oh, it's, ra- it's just racist. And th- where this really all comes from, there have always been these little moves. Oh, hey, man. Hey, c- wouldn't it be cool if we let criminals vote? You know, they'd always do a little bit. The 2000 election, that's what broke this. That, that's where this all started to steamroll up. Uh, a, two, a 2002 study uh, found that Democrat candidates receive seven out of every 10 votes that would be cast by felons or ex-felons in 14 of the then previous 15 U.S. Senate election years. 
they get 70% of them. That's just one study that shows this. Another study, so put it in starker terms, which is that had felons been allowed to vote in Florida in 2000, Al Gore would have won that election. Sore loserman would have actually ended up winning the election and being the president, and that would have been very terrible. Because that election came down to 537 votes. That was not a big election. So uh, that could really matter. I mean, that would swing whole elections. Now, that's, that's the reason they're doing it. It's the same thing with amnesty. It's the same with all these things. They just want votes. They just want to have, they've even admitted this in a, a Democrat memo that it's important to their electoral strategy to get all of these sort of undesirable constituencies to, uh, to vote for them. And so you've got the criminals. That's, that's the new bit that's in the news today. You also have the foreigners. We know that uh, illegal and legal aliens Illegal aliens and legal immigrants, recent immigrants to the United States, identify with Democrats between three times as frequently and 8.75 times as frequently. Huge uh, disparities between identifying Republican or identifying Democrat. So they say, give us amnesty. Give us amnesty. We're going to let all the ex-criminals vote. Then we're going to let all of the foreigners vote. They're even doing, they're giving ID cards out. They're letting illegal aliens vote in certain elections. And then the children. Then think of the children. So these are the most manipulable constituencies, right? You get these felons who are, you know, their lifeline is the state, right? They're they're in a very direct relationship to the state. Then you've got uh, illegal aliens who are living in the shadows, and they say, "We'll give you this little goodie. We'll give you this amnesty, but." got to remember who to vote for. And then kids. So right now, D.C., Washington, D.C., is considering allowing 16-year-olds to vote in the next presidential election. Very bad. I just imagine that kid from Parkland High School, from Douglas, Stoneman Douglas High School. That guy's going to vote. Excuse me. That guy is going to vote in the next presidential election, if D.C. gets its way. It's always lefty places that are doing this district the District of Columbia and these states. Uh, you've got to remember, 18-year-olds have only been allowed to vote s- since 1971, since the 26th Amendment. Probably not a great idea to do that then. Uh, probably not a great idea to do that now. It, this brings us to the question, what is the vote? Why? Is it just like, I need my right to vote? I deserve my right to vote. It's always, elections are always better if the most number of people vote, if the highest number of people can, can vote. Why is that the case? We want good, like, good people to vote. <laughs> we want people who are somewhat informed, who have a clear political vision, who have a good political vision, who love the country, who love their countrymen. That's who we want to vote. We don't want just anybody to vote. Why don't we let the whole world vote in our elections? Why? Why just limit it to, look, they're already trying to extend voting rights to foreign nationals who happen to be in the United States. Why not let the whole world vote in our elections? Oh, because that's probably not a great idea. There's this really shallow thinking in our, in modern liberal democracy that, oh, the more votes, the better rock the vote. South Park parodied this with uh, puff daddy. And they said like, "Voter die. I'm going to shoot you if you don't vote. No, if you don't want to vote, don't vote. Please don't vote. Please. If you do not want to vote, if you feel that you're not equipped to vote, don't do it. Let people who know what they are doing and have a vision for America, those guys should vote. And it definitely shouldn't be those little kids that CNN's trotting on TV. That's what this is all pointing toward. So we should not let that happen. Okay, before we, we have a lot of mailbag to get to. I got to wrap it up here. Before that, I do want to have a note on Barbara Bush. Everyone is so sad about Barbara Bush. 
it hit everybody hard. I we I had the show with Owen yesterday, so we didn't get to talk about this. Other than that Fresno State professor, who I won't even acknowledge her name, who said those mean things about Barbara Bush. Other than that, everyone is so sad. And I was wondering, why is that? She was 92 years old. She lived a good life. We're not weeping for Barbara Bush. We're weeping for ourselves, I think. We're weeping for not the death of Barbara Bush, but the death of marriage. A marriage that their marriage lasted 73 years, George Bush and Barbara Bush. We're weeping for the death of high school sweethearts that stay together and have kids and, you know, get married at age 20 or however old they were. We're, we're weeping for the death of a culture of politeness and civility and, and, and culture itself, of being cultured and restraint and a little bit of formality and, uh, and strength. And on that point of strength, we're weeping for the death of strong womanhood, truly strong womanhood. Barbara Bush, I, I've uh, read all the books that George W. Bush has written, and he refers to dad. You know, he calls George Bush dad, but he, he only referred to Barbara as mother. His mo- the, all of the stories of Barbara Bush, she took a firm hand. She was a tough cookie. You know, this was not not someone that you'd mess with lightly. And that's a, look, she wasn't the CEO of some company. She was a wife. She was a wife who was one of the strongest women in the country, uh, uh, idolized. She was strong. She was strong in her family. She ran that roost. You know, she kept everybody together. She kept it all going. But it was, it was so traditional. It, it was not that she was out there with the pink hats screaming with signs or anything like that. And, and that's died and it's made women weaker and it's made society more coarse. And I think we're coming to grips with that. And we're, we're looking back and saying, God, wasn't that nice? That's why we're not, look, she, Barbara Bush lived a great life. She lived to be 92 years old. She died holding her husband of seven plus decades' hand. And they were holding hands at the moment she died. There's nothing to be sad about uh, in, in that life. There's nothing tragic about that. That's a good way to go. What's sad is what the culture has become and the moral absurdity that has replaced that, that nicer culture, the legalism and, and your relationship to the state and the selfishness of just saying, no, I'm going to, I think I'm just going to be single forever and just do whatever I want and me, 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 me. And that's all it is. And it's not about relationships and it's not about building something and it's not about shared experience. And it's not about a life that has a coherent beginning, middle and end and a purpose. We've lost a lot of that. And maybe this moment of reflection as everyone's weeping for Barbara Bush, maybe we'll think about that ourselves and say, hmm, maybe it's time we try to fix our culture. Just a thought. I don't want to end on that really sad note, so I will just point out very briefly, Donald Trump is bringing peace to the Korean Peninsula. (laughs) After seven, you know, uh, the Bushes were married over 70 years. The Korean War has been going on for about 70 years, and Donald Trump may finally be ending it. They're talking about uh, formally ending the the Korean War. There was a truce in 1953, but it could be formally ending now under President Kofefe. Uh, And you can tell, by the way, that Donald Trump has been working on this pretty hard. He just admitted that he sent uh, Pompeo, the CIA director, to personally meet with Kim Jong-un last week. Uh, China is furious about this. China, because by the way, the Korean War was always a war between the U.S. and China. It wasn't really about the North, the North Koreans and the South Koreans. It was always a proxy war between the U.S. and China. It looks like it still is. And right now, Donald Trump is squeezing the Chinese. Uh, th- uh, this week, the Trump administration prevented American suppliers from selling parts to a major t- a Chinese tech giant. The uh, there were you know there were a lot of 
Chinese soldiers, millions of soldiers who fought in the Korean War. And in the old days, the uh, preconditions necessary for denuclearization in North Korea was that the U.S. let all of the troops out of the South. Now that's not even a precondition, apparently, uh, from stories that are coming out of North Korea. Sounds like the art of the deal to me, guys. I know that it, we all keep making fun of Trump and saying, oh, he just got lucky. Oh, he just got lucky. He keeps getting lucky. He just keeps keeps getting lucky. Now, it's important here it, during the art of the deal that Kim doesn't try to get us to have a massive troop reduction. We can keep some troops, but not all of them. Uh, that, that would give China a great victory here. We can't do that, especially as they aggress into the South China Sea. We need to keep a, a pretty robust American military presence there. Looks like it's going pretty well, so I'll keep my fingers crossed for all that Kofepe. We've got to get to the mailbag. We have a lot of mailbag today. Before we do that, then I got to go get ready for this speech. Unless, I don't know, maybe Antifa's there like wielding their clubs already. Before we do that, Go to dailywire.com. If you're already on the website, thank you. You help us keep the lights on, even in this great Da Vinci meeting space in the middle of Philadelphia. If you're not there, go. You get me. You get the Andrew Clavin show. You get the Ben Shapiro show. None of that matters. Guys, if Donald Trump brings peace to Korea, you need this Tumblr, man. Oh my gosh. You are going to drown in, you're going to go down to Davy Jones's locker. The monumental tidal waves of salty leftist tears are going to be so enormous. Get that leftist tears Tumblr. It's happening right now. There's going to be a talk between Trump and Kim. Get that leftist tears Tumblr before it's too late. Save yourself. We'll be right back. All right, we have a little bit of time left. We got to burn through these mailbag questions. We had some really good ones today. First one from Grayson. Michael, I really enjoy your show. Keep up the good work. Recently, you interviewed Owen Benjamin, and he said CrossFit is a bit of a cult, and I tend to agree. I've been a competitive swimmer since I was four years old, and I was wondering if you think that world is also a cult. Thanks, Grayson. I don't know about competitive swimming. You, I defer to your superior knowledge, but I suspect it is because a lot of these things are now. What are some other cults? There's uh, CrossFit. There, you know, there's this joke: uh, a CrossFitter, an atheist, and a vegan walk into a bar. How do I know? Because they wouldn't shut up about it. They, you know, they just tell you immediately. Wear it on their sleeves. Veganism, environmentalism, the global warming people, the PETA people. Uh, even really serious patriots sometimes, like the civil religion types, and obviously the leftists and the inter intersectionality people, those are all uh, substitutes for religion. You know, they're, they're cults. They are cults because everybody's got to serve somebody. So if you're not going and uh, having reconciliation with your priest and uh, or repenting or, you know, scourging yourself and saying mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, then you're going to be buying carbon off, off, uh, offsets and carbon uh, tax credits so that you can undo your sin of pollution. Everybody's got to serve somebody. You are going to do this. You're going to make the animals into a sort of God, into a nature worship. Oh, the innocent animals, they're so much better than us. Stop killing the chickens. Don't eat the chickens. You're just, even uh, civil religion, and we conservatives fall into this a little bit. You know, you can't substitute God with uh, the United States. I love the United States too. It's a wonderful country. That isn't worthy of worship. That's worthy of protecting and defending and admiration. But you, you, people can take things a little too far. And it's when you don't 
worship the guy who's, who is named I am that I am, you know, Moses asks God, he says, who should I tell them you are? And he says, I am that I am. When you don't worship that, then you have a pathetic question, which is, who am I? And you find all these little niche things. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're taking swimming very seriously. I don't know. But you can do all of these things in moderation. You just have to keep your priorities in order. Next question from Jeremiah. I am sending this immediately after reading an article on your site about a Wyoming school district passing a policy allowing teachers to conceal carry. Given that we already have a bit of an issue with trained officers misusing firearms, I don't know if unscrupulously arming school teachers is the best move. My concern is that if anything went wrong, such as a student disarming a teacher or, God forbid, a wrongful shooting of a student, the Second Amendment wouldn't survive the backlash. Fair point. According to the Nation Center of Educational uh, statistics, schools and university campuses are the safest areas in the U.S. when it comes to violent crimes and getting safer despite the uptick in shootings. So I'm not convinced the risk is necessary. I know there are restrictions for who can conceal carry in the bill, but I find these things to be vague and unconvincing, not to mention other districts might adopt less strict policies as well. I'm a huge Second Amendment advocate, but I don't want reactionary pro-gun policy uh, and I don't see any right-wing voices proposing nuanced ideas of what qualifies a teacher to be armed around students. So I'm sending this to all the Daily Wire shows in the hopes of getting an answer from the leading authors and thought leaders of the right. Knowles can answer too if he wants. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, don't worry about it so much. Don't worry about it. Your fear is that someone is going to misuse a gun in schools. They're going to have a gun in schools when they shouldn't or they, they're going to use it wrong. They already do that. They already do that. Look, the school shootings have declined precipitously since the early 1990s. But if someone wants to bring a gun to a school and, and misuse it, he's going to do it. He can easily do that already. The, the point here is to have some people who can protect them in that uh, case, in that instance. Why should you surrender your Second Amendment rights, your constitutionally protected civil rights, because you're walking into what could be a very dangerous situation and a situation that will be much more dangerous if the bad guys know that nobody has a gun in there? If somebody, it's not about arming teachers. It's not about saying, you need to carry a gun, Mrs. Smith. And I, I know that you've never shot one of these before, but here you go. Here's an AR-15. Have fun. She's like, gah, 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 gah. you know, that isn't what this is. This is for people who already exercise their Second Amendment rights, who are, are familiar with firearms, who are responsible with them, to, to be able to use those rights. Uh, plenty of people do that all the time in this country, in the more sane parts of this country. And as we all know, more people are killed every year by hands and feet and knives than are killed by AR-15s or any rifle of any kind whatsoever. The, uh, the argument against it, I, I don't see, I see it as very hypothetical. If there were some way to know that we couldn't, we could stop guns from being brought into schools and being misused, then okay, then that's fine. Then we don't need teachers to be able to use their second amendment rights. But if we could do that, that, that would, the problem would be totally solved, right? The, that is the problem, is that that is impossible. And as long as that is impossible, we need people who are responsible and sane and not evil and not criminals to be able to protect themselves and to protect others. Next question from Thomas. Troll Knowles. Hooray that the Korean Peninsula is now in peace during Donald Trump's presidency. But what happens if we have a liberal in the executive either in 2020 or 2024? Just wondering if you can foresee a conflict breaking out and the peninsula will go back on being disunified if the GOP loses control of the White House. Love the kofefeness of this show. Been a subscriber since 2017. Tuned into the Daily Wire ever since. 
Uh, thanks, Thomas. Yeah, that's a real threat, isn't it? I mean, that is a real threat. Use George Bush as an example of this. Uh, The war in Iraq had been mismanaged. It wasn't going very well. George Bush undertook an act of serious political courage to surge the troops back when no one had the guts to do it. No one wanted him to. Everyone was for the war before they were against the war. And Bush did it, and he won a victory in that country. And then Barack Obama won. And what did Barack Obama do? He chose to lose that war. A war that we had already won, he chose to lose it. He didn't want a status of forces agreement. He didn't want to maintain the peace. He just wanted to squander the victories in Iraq, the immense political courage it took to win those victories, and cut and run because he ran on running against Iraq and restarting the war in Afghanistan for some reason, because he needed a, a good war. He needed a war that wasn't Iraq to position himself against Republicans. There are huge threats here. Look, uh, look at ISIS. ISIS today would not exist, wouldn't be nearly as devastating, wouldn't have had so much control in that region if we hadn't just pulled all of our troops out and not secured a status of forces agreement. But these elections have big consequences. And I wouldn't be surprised if, forget Korea, the, the Democrats will squander a lot of hard-won victories from the past year. And they're, they're certainly going to try to impeach Donald Trump. These are huge stakes, so show up and vote in the midterms. Otherwise, you can't complain. Go out there. The stakes are really, really high. Okay, from Brad. Dear Master of Trolls, Michael Knowles, this past tax season, I worked as a part-time tax associate at a tax prep company. After I prepare my clients' 2017 taxes, I show them what their taxes would look like under the new 2018 tax rules. The new rules have been beneficial to all of my clients. I should be acting apolitical, but when I explain how the 2018 tax rules benefit my clients, I can't help but feel like I'm promoting Donald Trump and conservatism. How can I present the benefits of the new tax plan without feeling like I'm promulgating a political agenda? Keep up the terrific work. Yeah, reality is showing the advantages to having Donald Trump and Republicans in the government. That is what reality does. You can't say, unless you want to lie to them, you can't do that. Uh, you know, do, I, you, can't, you can't be apolitical, especially not in your line of work. Your line of work is actually about central political issues. How much of your own property you're allowed to keep and how you interact with this massive federal government that every year comes and gets its claws into all of your hard-earned money. You can't do that. P- politics is the affairs of men. And money and making money and paying money to the government is central to the affairs of men. So you're not going to do that. You know, the, the, the reality favors conservative governance and conservative thoughts. Things get better. Things get more just. Uh, the societies become fairer, more compassionate, more charitable. That's just the way it works. Don't worry about being apolitical. It's like, you know, you've got this one really awful political agenda that hates its own country, hates itself, wants to sow division and destruction. And then you have the other one that says, make America great again. Say, oh, well, they're about the same. There's an equivalence there. No, there's no equivalence. That one's terrible and this one's good. (laughs) So you got to be honest with people. From Taylor. Dear Kofefone, That's a good pun. I don't believe in the literal presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Isn't a more plausible reason that the disciples react so strongly to Jesus's language used during the Last Supper simply because he is making himself the center of a Passover meal and not because they think he is literally advocating cannibalism? At the very least, the Eucharistic rituals practiced today in the Catholic Church are a far cry from the simple breaking of bread by first century Jewish nomads at likely a dirty table with likely soiled hands. Uh, doesn't the pomp and circumstance and mysticism miss the point? It's a metaphor, man. Come on. Genuinely interested, sincerely big fan of the show, Taylor. Uh, 
Uh, no, the things that you just said aren't true. They aren't true. The Eucharist, as it is practiced even in 2018, is spiritually identical with what was happening even in first century, in the, in the first century, even among people who lived during the time of Christ on earth and knew Christ and became the early converts to Christianity. With regard to the metaphor, you're missing what a metaphor is. You're misunderstanding what a metaphor is. This happened, first of all, nobody doubted the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist until the 16th century or so. Nobody has any kind of big theological movement in the West that was able to spread. Martin Luther didn't do that until the day he died. He believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. This is a very modern concept that comes out of rationalism in the modern era. Metaphor is... Uh, you're using metaphor to say not uh, literal, right? A symbolic, but not literal. And But the word literal, which means not symbolic, is referring to letters, which are symbols. So the relationship between symbols and the symbolized is much more complicated between the literal and the metaphorical. What you're, what you're missing is uh, what the Eucharist is, what the sacraments are. The Eucharist has been celebrated and consumed since the very beginning of the church, since Christ instituted it, and we can read that in the Gospels. Ignatius of Antioch, who was born either in 35 AD or 50, excuse me, 50 AD, uh, he could have been alive during the time of Christ. Uh, he died between 98 and about 117 AD. He mentions the Eucharist as the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's in the first century. Justin Martyr. Uh, he refers to the Eucharist as the food over which the prayer of thanksgiving, the word became, received from Christ, has been said, is the flesh and blood of this Jesus who became flesh. And the deacons carry some to those who are absent. The deacons would actually carry the Eucharist out. They felt it was so important. A real thing, symbol and symbolized coming together. And Jesus is clear in his words. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. What is he doing? Uh, Pliny the Younger writes of the Eucharist. Hippolytus of Rome writes of it. The Didache, you know, the, the teachings of the Twelve Apostles, which was the, it's the earliest catechism of the church from the first century. It deals explicitly with these sacraments, with baptism and with the Eucharist. It also instructs on fasting and on daily prayer and, and uh, things that I think also a lot of uh, more rationalist versions of Christianity now today would try to deny or ignore. Uh, when Christ says at that supper table, do this in memory of me, the word is anamnesis. I'm not, I don't have a lot of Greek, but that, that isn't just in memory or, hey, remember Jesus? Hey, you remember him? He was a nice guy. It's, it's more akin to a memorial sacrifice. It's theologically rich and full. There is something happening. St. John Vianney said, if we really knew what happened during the mass, we would die, not from fear, but from love. What is happening here, uh, pardon my directness, you're missing the point. Come on, man. It's a metaphor. You're, you're, you're missing the point of what Christ is doing. Because in Christ, you have the metaphor, the metaphysical, the logos, the divine logic of the universe, and the symbol, the physical, the flesh and blood coming together in one, in the incarnation. In the incarnation, the metaphysical and the physical become one. They, it's, it's the meeting of heaven and earth. And that's what we have in the sacraments as well. The sacraments are regular touchings of heaven and earth together so that the physical and the metaphysical become the same thing. That's why they're so important. That's why everyone has always defended them. That's why the early 
Protestant innovators all defended them. Practically all defended these things. They're so spiritually important. They're so essential to what Christ is that to deny them is missing the point. Do we have time? We have time for like one more, I think. Let's see. What would be a good one to do? All right. I'm going to, a lot of people were upset with my Germany episode about how Germany is the worst country in the world, but I'm just going to have to get to the, maybe we'll get to that in the conversation or something or at next week's mailbag. Um, Let's go to this last question. Dear Mr. Knowles, the Austin Lively of women's dreams. Ooh, hubba hubba. I'm having some issues with my boyfriend. We've been dating for almost two years. We both live with our parents and have been talking a lot about moving out together. I have a full-time job and currently am seeking another part-time job. My boyfriend only has a part-time job and talks about working more but never takes any action. I have made it very clear that I will not support him in our future, but I still feel like he wants to make no effort into future plans. How should I handle this? I'm ready to be on my own and start a life. P.S. I'm a feminist's worst nightmare. I would love to be fully supported by a man and live as a wonderful future housewife and mother. Thanks. Well, sounds like you're going to need another guy, my dear. I'm sorry to say. Who knows? I guess there are two sides to every story. But this guy's got to man up. It's like that scene in The Godfather when Don Corleone takes the singer, Johnny Fontaine. Johnny Fontaine, he goes, oh, Godfather, I don't know what to do. He goes, you're going to act like a man. What's the matter with you? That's, that, that sounds like that's what your boyfriend needs. Uh, he needs a job. You need to work. And he needs to want to work. And he needs to be a workaholic. All the people uh, that I know whose marriages haven't worked out, who's uh, from uh, across age brackets, uh, a lot of times it's because there's an apathy, there's a lethargy, there's, I don't want to do this. Ah, oh, do I have to? There's trying to just, uh, uh. no, you've got to take charge. You've got to take charge. And especially if you want to live in these kind of more traditional roles, then he's got to take charge and get out of the house. And frankly, if he, I don't know, maybe you're 16, in which case uh, that's okay. But assuming that you're not, assuming that your boyfriend isn't in college or something, uh, if he isn't working hard, especially especially if he's young and even more, especially if he's older, if he isn't working hard and really driven and trying to do that, then sound to to quote our president, he sounds like a loser, total loser. Maybe this will shape him up and he'll go get a job, but otherwise get out of there, get out of there, my dear run for your life. (laughs) Okay. I have got to go get ready for pen. I've got to go put on my body armor to protect against Antifa and things like that. I think we're going to live stream it. So try to tune in if you can find the link anywhere. Otherwise, we'll post bits from it uh, tomorrow or the following day. In the meantime, I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. If I survive Antifa tonight at Trump University, I will see you next week. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire forward publishing production. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Overa. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.